Lord God, I thank you so much for uh, the evidences of grace in the life of this church. And I pray that you would continue to give her more grace, give us more grace. And I pray that even now as I open up your word and herald your gospel, that that would be a means of grace in the hearts of your people. Even today, even right now, Lord, would you be with me? Would you be with us? In your son's name we pray. Amen. So if you were at the park yesterday, you heard my testimony. And if you were here yesterday in the the fellowship hall, you heard my wife's testimony. And a big part of our testimony is that we have a history of drug abuse in our family. And uh, it's true. My great-grandmother was a drug addict. My grandmother was a heroin addict. Mom, dad was a drug dealer. I was a drug addict. And so I grew up going to these things called NA meetings. Does anybody know what NA is? Narcotics Anonymous? Maybe you've heard of the more popular Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, it's this 12-step program that's meant to kind of help people who are struggling with addiction to drug and alcohol. And I think that's good. And overall, it's not a bad system. It's not a bad program. You follow these 12 steps, and it's kind of supposed to help you get clean. Uh, There is a pretty serious concern that I have with that program, uh, despite all the good things. One of the good things is a prayer that they pray that I think we would do well to pray as Christians. It says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Isn't that a good prayer? You also have to follow these steps. These are supposed to be your 12 steps to getting clean, to getting off of drugs. Here's step one. We admitted that we were powerless over our addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. If you were to replace that word addiction with sin, I think that would be a good thing for us to admit as Christians. Before Christ saved us, we have to admit that we were powerless over our sins, that our lives are unmanageable. Step number two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. This is pretty good. We're admitting that we're helpless, that we don't have anything within us to fix this problem that's definitely inside of us, and we need help from outside of us, and that power here... Maybe that's God. But then we get to the third step and it says, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Is that a helpful way to think about God? To think about the power outside of ourselves that needs to come into our lives to fix the issue that we have a God as we understood him. Is it possible for us to rightly understand God? Do we trust ourselves that we have rightly understood who God is? And if so, how do we even know that we are going about thinking about this whole thing in the right way? The second letter of John, which is the book we're going to be in this morning, deals with exactly this theme because the second letter of John deals with the issue of who Jesus is. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should know that we as Christians, we don't think Jesus was like a nice guy, a good guy, a moral teacher. We think that Jesus came to earth as God in the flesh and that we can know who God is when we look at Jesus Christ. And therefore, we think that this idea of getting Jesus right is the most important thing in the world. So with that being said... Let's turn to the book of 2 John, if you have it. Uh, do you guys have pew Bibles? Yeah, kind of? Okay. Well, it's towards the, the back of your Bible. It's in 2 John. 
If you don't have one, buddy up, use your phone. Guys, we're going to read a whole book of the Bible today. A whole book of the Bible. Are you guys ready? It's going to take a while. All right, here we go. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, that is the church, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So watch yourselves, that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and to talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy, inerrant, infallible, perfect word to us today. Amen? Amen. John says some pretty powerful things, some pretty not nice things in this letter. He says things like, if you don't have Jesus right, you don't have God which is like the most offensive thing you can say in our modern day, that someone doesn't understand something and that someone doesn't ha have God. So why did I choose to talk about this subject today, about getting Jesus right? I could have preached about anything. Grant didn't assign me a text. The elders didn't ask me to communicate about anything in particular. Uh, I'm pretty passionate about a lot of different areas in theology and life. Uh, one of my practical boots-on-the-ground ministries is at abortion clinics. I'm very passionate about abortion. I think it's one of the greatest social... It is the greatest social justice issue in the history of the world. We murder babies in this country, and we act like it doesn't exist. I could have talked about that this morning, but I didn't. I could have just talked about any one of my hobby horses. The reason why I want us to talk about 2 John and the reason why I want us to talk about getting Jesus right is because unless you have Jesus right, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter if you go out in front of the abortion clinic with your signs. It doesn't matter if you feed the poor. It doesn't matter if you do any of those other good things that you want to do that you're probably already doing in your life. If you don't have Jesus right, none of that matters. You can't love someone if you're lying to them about who Jesus Christ is. And I think that that's what John is saying this morning. What Jesus has done for us and who Jesus is and what he has accomplished to save us is the most important thing in the history of the world. 
if you don't understand this, nothing else matters. I'm going to keep repeating myself. So I hope that by the time I'm done with the sermon, if I say, hey guys, what's the most important thing in the world? You'll say, understanding Jesus or getting Jesus right. At the end of my introduction, you guys may have noticed that I said that you can't love people well if you get Jesus wrong. And I think that that statement is defensible in the Bible, but I think exponentially more so here in the book of 2 John. Our culture tends to view love and truth as being at odds with one another, don't they? Uh, We think being loving and kind to someone is kind of telling them a little white lie, not hurting their feelings. But I think in the Bible, and here in the book of 2 John particularly, we see that love and truth are opposite sides of the same coin. In verse 1, John says, He loves the elect lady and her children in truth and love. And then if you look at verse 3, he tells us that the grace, mercy, and peace that comes to us from God by the work of Christ, it comes to us in truth and love. So both truth and love have to be present for either one of them to really mean anything. If you have truth but no love, you're wasting your time. If you say that you're loving without truth, without being true, without telling the truth, you're just confused because lying to someone is not loving them. Biblically speaking, we see this. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. You guys see that from the verses we just read? There has to be some standard of truth upon which we all agree in order for there to be love. In order for us to have love, there has to be some line of demarcation between what is true and false. There has to be ought language. It can't be built on our emotions or our desires or upon whatever our culture is telling us at this present day and age. It has to be something eternal. And that eternal thing has to be God, His law, His word, His commandments, because they are a reflection of who God is. It's eternal. We live in a world where truth is constantly changing. What is good today may be wrong tomorrow. What's wrong today may be highly valued in 20 years. So when we're looking to find out what is true so that we can best love the world and serve the world, we have to look beyond the front of our noses and what's going on in the culture around us. We have to look at something eternal, namely someone eternal, the one who created us, who is the source and standard of all truth, God himself. And a God that we come to understand in our own way is not the real God of the Bible. It's not the God of the universe. So, practically speaking, brothers and sisters, everything that I've just said, I think we kind of know it to be true, even if we can't articulate it. Who has kids? Yeah? Okay. Who has kids that are sinners? All right. Who has, who has kids that have lied to them? Doesn't it hurt? Particularly like the first time, like the first time your kid lies to you and it's a bold face, out and out lie. And they're just looking at you with that straight face. It just hurts. You're like, oh man, my kid is a sinner too. I thought I was the exception. But in that moment... Doesn't that feel more like hate than love? If you had a husband who communicated deceitfully 
more with his wife. Wouldn't you say that the wife felt more hated than loved? We kind of intrinsically know that to love each other is to tell each other the truth. Sometimes it hurts our feelings, but it's what we're called to. When my daughter lies to me, my inner dialogue goes something like this. And how could she lie to me? I thought she loved me. I know that that's just me being a little overly sensitive, but I think it reflects the nature of what we're talking about. Brothers and sisters, lying about Jesus Christ is the opposite of love. It's hate. It's so hateful, in fact, that John says in our reading this morning that the one who lies about Jesus is an antichrist. Did you guys notice that? Look at verse 7 with me, if you still have your Bibles open. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So we're not going to get into uh, a whole thematic study on the antichrist this morning. That could lead us down some weird trails. Let's just say it like this. Jesus says that we are, we have a capital A apostle, the guys who went out, the 12 guys who went out and preached the gospel, and that was kind of this one-time thing. But he also recognizes apostles, just like anybody who's being sent out by a church. That's a lowercase apostle. There's also Christ, but there's also, in each one of us, little Christ walker, little Christ, we're walking around like Christ. That's why they call us Christians, okay? In the same way, there is an antichrist a real capital A Antichrist who will come at the end of days. But in the meantime, there are also lowercase a Antichrists walking around. And the way that you know who an Antichrist is, is they are doing the opposite of what Christ came to do. Literally, Antichrist. So what is it that Christ came to do? We, to save us from our sins. Brothers and sisters, God created us good. And he created everything good and he created everything perfect. But our father Adam sinned. And with his sin, sin entered the world and with it death. And every human being that has come after our father Adam has fallen in sin. And because of our sin, we are all guilty before a holy and righteous God. We deserve his wrath. Because we don't love him like we ought to love him. We don't obey him like we ought to obey him. We don't treasure him like we ought to treasure him. And because of that, his wrath is against us. He will punish wickedness. And wickedness is what we are personified. But God loves us so much that he did not leave us in our sin. He did not leave us to our deaths. He did not abandon us to the pits of hell. He made a way for us to be made right again. He made a way to bring us home, to bring us back. And that way is not the way that the world would go about doing it. He came down and he died for us. He came down and he took on human flesh and he lived the perfect life that we could never live. And we killed him for that. And we hung him on a cross where he suffered the wrath of God that we should have suffered. And he suffered the hell that you and I deserve. And he calls on all men everywhere to repent of their sins, 
and to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sins and you have not turned from your sins and you have not trusted in Christ, I need you to know that you are under the wrath of God. And that is the scariest thing in the world. But as long as you are alive, there is still hope. In love, Christ is even now through me calling you back to the Father. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. Trust in Christ for your salvation. And he will save you. I know. He saved me. I was the chief of sinners. I hated God. I was at war with God. And he loved me. And he broke me. And he saved me. And the reason why it's so bad when people get Jesus wrong is because they literally invert the gospel that I just shared with you. Jesus came to tell you the truth about yourself. He came to tell you the truth about the Father. He came to tell you the truth about this sin situation that we're in. And he came to fix it. And the Antichrist comes in when he lies about who Jesus is. There is no way for you to be forgiven of your sins. If you trust in the wrong Jesus, if you don't trust in the Jesus of the Bible as he really was and as he really explains himself to be, there is no hope. There is no salvation. You are worshiping a false God that you have created in your mind. A God that cannot save you. And that's why John calls them antichrist, because they are literally anti what Christ came to do. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, if you don't abide in the teaching of Christ, you don't have God. And if you do abide in the teaching of Christ, you do have God. So it seems that John is saying, if you don't have Christ, the true Christ, as he has revealed himself, then you do not belong to God. And if you don't have God, you have nothing. You are ruined. There is no hope. I hope you're enjoying your life now because this is as good as it's going to get. And that is a terrifying prospect. It's a depressing prospect. If this is as good as it gets, brothers and sisters, we should go out and eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. So, I've been talking a lot about getting Jesus right and about people who get Jesus wrong. John, in his letter here, is dealing with a very specific way that people during the time of his writing were getting Jesus wrong. It's called Gnosticism. Who's heard of that? Oh, more than a... Okay. We're not going to get deep into the weeds on it. Here's what it means. There were some people who thought they had gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. They thought they had a secret hidden knowledge available to them, okay? And they thought that there was only super special spooky means that only a few people could have access to this knowledge. But they also had this weird worldview that said that everything that's spiritual is good, but everything that's physical, material, is bad. So they would say the soul that's inside of your body is good, but this wooden podium is evil and bad. And so because they believe that, the idea that Jesus being God, could come down and live in the flesh, that was just a no-go for them. A little side note, people who say that uh, 
the divinity of Jesus is something that kind of formulated in the life of the early church over the first couple of hundred years have not even cracked the Bible open. Because in the book of 2 John, the very clear issue at hand is that they knew Jesus to be God. But some people were trying to say, yeah, Jesus is God, but he can't come in the flesh. And John here says, that is just false. And he says that the one who comes and who confesses this wrong Jesus is an error. So what does that word confess mean? Well, confession is something that Christians have been doing since as early as God called Abraham to himself and formulated a people. When I say confession, don't get it confused with what Catholic people do when they go in front of a priest and think that they're getting forgiven for their sins, but they're not. They're just wasting their time and breath. Confession, when we use that term, brother, when and sister, when the Bible uses the term confess, all it means is, what do we state that we believe about God? And as early as people have been gathering around the God of the Bible, he has been commanding them to confess him rightly. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you've read any good Bible-based parenting books, that's the chapter you're going to spend time in. It says, hey, when you get up in the morning, you need to talk about God. When you walk by the way, you need to talk about God. When you go down, go to sleep at night, you need to talk about God. You need to wear this weird thing in between your eyes to help you remember God. You need to put it on your fence post to help you remember about God. That's the reason why I'm totally okay with my wife putting Bible verse stuff all over the house. Because I get it. She's trying to do what the book of Deuteronomy tells her to do, which is always be reminding everyone in this household about God. And it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And God has been commanding his people to recite that together for generations, for millennia. He started doing that because they were surrounded by these pagan nations that believed in more than one God. And so the God of the Bible reveals himself and he says, nope, there's not more than one God. I am God and there's only one of me. And I know that your pagan neighbors are going to try to lie to you and tell you that there are more than one God, that there's more than one God, but there's not. So what I want you to do is to recite this. And they would. And they would say, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And then just all throughout the rest of our Bibles, in 1 Corinthians 15, if you were here yesterday, we talked about that. Paul is reciting there the earliest set of beliefs, the primary beliefs that the Christians have. We deliver unto you as of first importance that Christ was crucified, that he was buried, that he was raised, all in accordance with the Scriptures. Yeah? And that is a right confession about who Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, the only reason that we are Trinitarians right now is because there was a council that met at Nicaea. There was this guy named Arius, and he was going around and he was saying, Jesus isn't God. Jesus isn't really God. And the Christian church had to respond. And the document that we just read this morning, that was their response. They came together and they said, no, Jesus is God, and we are going to rightly confess it. Wasn't that great this morning, if you were paying attention? What it taught us about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? If you read that aloud this morning, even if you weren't super excited when you did it, you were reciting, you were confessing, using the language of John, true things about the God that we worship, as God has called us to do. I come from a a Baptist background, but as some of you know, I was at a PCA church before this, which is a really good, it's a really good church. And they have this thing called the Westminster Confession. And that's kind of their like really long confession. Some of it's probably too long and some of it's not even the best. Baptists came along and they said, oh, that's a really good confession. We're going to steal it. We're going to change what it says about baptism. 
and the church government, and we're going to call it our own thing. And they did. They literally stole it. Even the Church of God, which has historically said, ah, we don't really do creeds and confessions. Uh, I was going through your website a little bit, and I looked down, and it said, we don't have a formal statement of faith. And then I went to the bottom, and it said, what we believe, and I clicked on it, and it was a statement of faith. And I was like, oh, okay. So even in the Church of God, brothers and sisters, we know it's probably good for us to have what we believe about the most important things of the gospel written down so that we can all look back and reference the same thing and say, oh, yeah, this is good, right, and true. It protects us from heresy. It protects us from lies about who Jesus is. And it helps us promote the unity of the church. We should have unity, but we should only have unity in truth. So, if we need to make sure that we get Jesus right, does this mean that we should don a cape? That we should put our Bibles on our hips, ESV of course, or NASB, and that we should fly by night as heresy hunters, looking for people who don't have Jesus perfectly right? I don't think so. Uh, I don't want to tell you what to do on your off time on the weekends. Um, But I think that there are two main ways that we can think about what John is trying to teach us here in this letter. The first is individual. We need to be vigilant for our own souls first and foremost. You know how on the planes going down, they say, put on your own oxygen before you help your children? Same principle. Look at verse 8. It says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't ever need to be concerned with anyone else. As a matter of fact, John is writing this letter to a church. So in a church, hopefully, we're loving one another and serving one another by reminding each other the truth about Jesus Christ. But you can't serve your brother or your sister if you yourself are deceived about who Jesus Christ is. Jesus told people to pull logs out of their own eyes before they go digging for specks in their brother's eyes. I mean, just try to imagine what that would look like in person if I was sitting here with like a two-by-four sticking out of my eye and I was trying to help you get the little speck of dust out of your eye. It wouldn't make... Brother, your vision is obstructed. You can't see clearly. You need to fix your own self before you worry about someone else. So one of the things that I just want to encourage all of us to do this morning is to just make sure that we have a good, robust understanding of who Christ is and what he has done to save us from our sins. Because you know what? At the end of the day, you are not going to stand before the judgment seat with anyone else around you. You are going to stand before God. And you will give an account for your understanding of Christ and what he did to save you. The simplest way you can make sure you're walking in the truth of God's word is to read it. The simplest way you can make sure that you understand Jesus, that you have Jesus right, is to read the book that Jesus gave you that tells you about himself. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, but it's, this is not a textbook that if you open it, it will say, page one, Jesus is like this. Page two, Jesus is like this. This is a story about God and the universe. And Jesus Christ is at the heart of that. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is walking down the road with some men. And he scolds them. He rebukes them. He says, you don't understand how to read your Bibles because you don't know that I am at the heart of it. Oops, sorry. Moses, the prophets... They all speak about me. Everything in this Bible is about me. Everything in the universe is about Jesus Christ. Everything that has ever happened, that is happening, or that will happen in the future, 
is God ordained to point to the person, work, and glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. So if you want to know Jesus Christ better, listen to sermons, listen to podcasts, take advantage of the means of grace that God has given you, like the church, fellowship, fellow believers. The Holy Spirit will guide you in all of this, but make sure you open your Bibles. Secondly, after you've looked out for yourself, when we think about getting Jesus right, we need to make the distinction and the qualification that we have to be careful about who we receive as teachers. Okay? So, look at verse 10 with me real quick, guys. Close my Bible. Second John, verse 10. All right. He says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. So, one of the reasons why I don't think we're supposed to put on our capes and our masks and put our Bibles on our hips and go out and hunt for heresy and hunt for people who don't really understand Jesus correctly is because here, John is making a clear distinction between just an average brother and sister in Christ and someone whom God has given the authority to teach God's word, to teach his very word. There's a difference in accountability between Joe in the seats and Joe in the pulpit. There's a difference between a member of a church and the pastor of a church. The pastor of this church, the elders of this church, Mike, Mike, Doug, Grant, these brothers will have to stand before God and give an account for the souls of the member of this church. They will have to give an extra measure of accountability to the Lord for the way that they have shepherded his resources, particularly the most precious of his resources, these sheep. And so here in the book of 2 John, he tells us, if someone comes in their teaching, they are preaching a false gospel. That is what you need to be more aware of than anything. He says even that we shouldn't greet such a person or invite them into our homes. Now, who here has ever had a Mormon show up at their doorstep? All right. I know some people are going to read this, and they're going to be like, I swear, if he takes one step across the threshold, I'm going to give it to him. I don't think that that's what he's talking about here, guys. I don't think John is saying that if I shake the hand of the Jehovah's Witness neighbor that I have, or if I let a Mormon guy come into my house so that I can try to give him the gospel, that I'm guilty of participating in his evil works. Uh, in the ancient world, to accept someone into your home or to greet them in public was just the way that you extended the hand of fellowship. It was kind of like the way you said, hey, we're on the same team, right? So these, even one of the earliest documents that we have outside of the Bible, this thing called the Didache, it told us how to deal with traveling prophets. And one of the ways that you would deal with them is if they showed up and they were saying good things, you would invite them in for a meal, that's why Jesus tells the disciples who are going around, if they don't receive you, wipe the dust off of your feet and go to the next village. What he meant there was, if they don't let you come in, have a meal, stay the night. But what he really meant was, if they don't accept what you're preaching and teaching. So, practical application, since it doesn't really literally mean letting them come into your house, doesn't really literally mean don't shake their hand, what does it mean? Well, brothers and sisters, I think it means don't do 
anything that will allow the watching world to think that we are on the same team as those guys over there who lie about who Jesus is. So, an example of that, FCA. If I'm invited to go and speak at an FCA meeting, and maybe there is a Catholic priest at this FCA meeting as well, and they ask us if we can pray together, I'm not going to pray with that Roman Catholic priest because I'm not going to do anything to confuse the people in that room, to allow them to think that I'm on the same team as this guy. I'm not going to pray in public with the lesbian minister down the street at a football game because I don't want to do anything to let the watching world think, do anything to allow the watching world to think that I'm on the same team as them. I'm not going to invite someone who gets the gospel wrong, like a Church of Christ man who says that baptism saves you and regenerates you. I'm not going to ask him to fill my pulpit because if I ask him to come here and share, the, share God's word with you, I am basically lending him my credibility. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go fill in in his pulpit. There are a thousand examples, but even in your own personal lives, brothers and sisters, in what ways might you be undermining the gospel that you proclaim and that you practice and that you believe by locking arms with people who are misleading the world about Jesus Christ? in your workplaces, in your schools, at home? In what way are you professing one thing but then doing something else that's just confusing? Something to consider. So, the Jesus of the Bible has been revealed by the Jesus of the Bible. He has told us who he is. We cannot invent a Jesus of our own understanding. For the Gnostic in John's day, the Jesus of their understanding was a disembodied Jesus. It was a Jesus, God come down, who just appeared to be in the flesh. But he wasn't really fully human. And John says that is not a real Jesus. But what about us? Do we have a Jesus of our own understanding? The Huffington Post recently came out with an article that said that Jesus was the first transgendered woman. Not joking. Are we making Jesus in our own perverted image and likeness? The Bible says that God created us in His image, in His likeness. And anywhere that sin goes... And anywhere that sinners think wrongly about God, we do the opposite of that. We try to create God in our own image and in our own likeness. And the really funny thing is, the God that we are inventing seems to like all the same things that we like. And he seems to agree with all the same things that we agree with. And he seems to be opposed to all the same things that we're opposed to. So, you know, it's really easy to pick on the hard left who invents a God of their own understanding. And they say, yeah, Jesus was a LGBT transgendered activist, or the Marxist and the socialists who say that Jesus was actually the champion of, uh, help me out here, communism, or black liberation theology that says that Jesus came to bring racial diversity. But what about us? That's kind of all this really far left, liberal, weird stuff that we don't encounter in Alabama. But in Alabama, we are some gun-toting, truck-driving, Republican voting Christians, of whom I am the chief. I have a gun. I wish I had a truck. 
And uh, man, I wish Republicans would get it together. I, I, could, I could really get there. I'm certainly not a Democrat. But isn't it funny that our Jesus seems to be in line with all the same things that we're in line with? I think if we created the Jesus of our own understanding, he would say, roll tide, and he would have a southern accent. (laughs) He would be a a limited government, conservative, Reagan-loving, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, rebel-flag-flying Jesus. So my question, brothers and sisters, is does our Jesus that we invent look more like Ronald Reagan or more like Jesus, the son of Mary, the Jewish, Arabic-speaking, Middle Eastern carpenter of the Bible who was poor and who went around offending people all the time by telling them the truth about themselves. If the incarnation is true, and if Jesus is God, and if we really believe the Bible that it says that we live in a fallen world where everyone is guilty of viewing God wrongly and distorting the image of God, that wouldn't it make sense that wherever God reveals himself, it has to confront someone in their wrong understanding of who God is? When God shows up on the scene in the jungles of South America, it confronts the village there who thinks that the God is made of the river. When it shows up in Japan, it confronts their Buddhist ideologies. When it shows up in secular Europe, it confronts their liberal ideologies. When the God of the universe shows up in, southern, uh, in northern Alabama, it confronts us in our own American ideologies. The Bible reveals Jesus as who he really is. And whenever we come into contact with him, we will have to repent of some wrong way that we've been thinking about God. And that is true in this church as well. It's true in my heart. It's true in your heart. And it's true of us corporately. Brothers and sisters, you are very seriously considering bringing me here to serve as your pastor. And uh, I don't think you should take that lightly. I don't think you are. Maybe you have some concerns about me coming. Maybe you've heard I believe in some secondary doctrines that kind of rub you the wrong way. Maybe you don't like the fact that I have tattoos. Maybe you really like me and you think I'm a good preacher and you believe that I'm a gift from God to help Sixth Avenue get back to where she should be. But none of that matters if I don't have Jesus right. If I'm not preaching the true gospel of the Bible. Whether you vote me in or not, my charge to you, brothers and sisters, is whoever comes after me, whoever remains in this church as a faithful member, You are the last line of defense against a false gospel. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, you are being foolish, Galatians. You are foolish. I don't know what happened. I came and I brought you the true gospel. And now you are so quickly deserting that gospel and turning to another gospel. And you know what? He didn't write that to the the pastors in Galatia. He didn't write that to the elders. He didn't write it to the deacons. He didn't write it to a a board. He didn't write it to a denominational figurehead. He didn't write it to an ordination council. He wrote it to the congregation. He said, you, 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 you have the responsibility to protect your church from heresy, from wrong teaching about Jesus Christ. I will be okay if you don't vote me in. As a matter of fact, I want to take this time to encourage any person here who does not think I should be here to vote your conscience. I will be okay. You won't hurt my feelings. 
you have amazing leaders in Grant and the elders. I think you will be okay. Jesus does not build his church on the backs of men, particularly any one man, and especially a one man as weak and as sinful as I am. So feel free to vote no. It will be okay. But if you do vote no, as you look forward for more leadership, please make sure that the man you bring into this church loves Jesus, understands Jesus, preaches Jesus rightly, and obeys Jesus from his heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for your revelation. Thank you for telling us the truth about ourselves. Thank you for telling us the truth about yourself. Thank you for loving us and freeing us from our ignorance. We don't deserve it. And that's why it's called grace, Lord. So I pray that you would give us more grace. Even now as we wrap up the day, I pray that we would use this, the Lord's Day, to meditate on you, to focus on you. And as we go about our day resting, that we would be reminded of the rest that we have in you and who you really are. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.